Hi everyone, it's Matt here. I'm just letting you know we missed the first couple of minutes of uh, the sermon recording due to technical issues on Sunday. So we've got a different reading here and we just missed the first couple of minutes of Cam's sermon. Hope you still find it really helpful. So last week we heard in 1 Kings chapter 12 how the kingdom of Israel was divided in two. Um, the t northern ten tribes of Israel took their own king and then they parted ways with Judah in the south, ruled by kings from the family of David. So it's gone pretty badly since then, especially for the northern ten tribes of Israel, who've had a whole string of terrible kings, leading up to their worst king, Ahab, about 50 years after where we finished last week. In chapter 17, God raised a prophet named Elijah, who announces to King Ahab, there will be a great drought in Israel. So today we're picking the story up again in chapter 18, three years into this severe drought. Elijah is sent by God to see King Ahab, and we're going to begin our reading in verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called in the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, no one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said, surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's asleep and must be wakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, 
Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had brought them down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. You know that one of the problems we see all through 1 and 2 Kings is the reoccurring problem with a monarchy. Uh, no matter how good your monarch is, no matter how long they reign, no matter how much their country loves them and prospers under them, eventually all good monarchs die. Uh, their successor is often, nearly always actually, in 1 Kings, their successor is either usually completely useless or a, a terrible hum, human being, sometimes a bit of both. Uh, so th- those of you who have doubts about the Old Testament being relevant to the modern world, you can put those doubts aside, uh, but enough on that. And the first 17 chapters, the decades have shot by really quickly, actually. If you've been reading through, often you'll kind of uh, cover a whole decade or two in just a sentence. Uh, today, though, the, the narrator really slows right down that timeline, don't they? Uh, it comes to a screeching halt as they take us just to really one day uh, to focus on events there. Uh, and what a day it is. What a day it is, what a day it would have been to be there. This great showdown. We have Elijah, the, the prophet of God, who's all by himself. He's against 450 of the prophets of Baal, and the king as well, the whole royal family backs the prophets, and all of Israel comes to watch, and the winner takes all. Now, that is the classic underdog story, isn't it? One against 450. It strikes me that as Christians, I think we kind of uh, feel and live this underdog story ourselves so often. Uh, being a believer in a place like Adelaide, it's, it's pretty good, uh, really. There's uh, not too many uh, troubles that come our way often. Uh, it's still, heading into your workplace or your school or your uni, uh, you do feel uh, noticeably outnumbered, don't you? Uh, feeling like a ratio of you know, 450 to 1 uh, is, is about right sometimes. And just like Elijah, we don't have the, you know, the powerful elites backing us uh, like Ahab was backing the prophets of Baal. And it's not that we're out to try and fight people, is it? We're not trying to win a cultural war, but we are trying to win people to Jesus. We want others to see what we see, what a great saviour he is, what a great king he is. And just like Elijah, we see our whole country, especially sometimes, especially the powerful elites, are worshipping anything and everything under the sun other than the one God who made us and who loves us. 
can be disheartening, can't it? Uh, seeing our nation with their hearts being poured out in all sorts of directions other than the one direction that would bring them joy. And I know it's not just me, um, just sometimes finding, uh, yeah, losing heart a little in the, in the work of mission, uh, losing heart that Jesus is really going to save lives in Australia. And it does seem so often that we're up against it. And we are reminded, of course, that Jesus himself was the classic underdog, wasn't he? Jesus always held the minority position. He wasn't particularly popular for the things he taught, so he was killed on a cross for it. The thing is, there's nothing wrong with being an underdog as long as, in the end, you win. Uh, because when you think about it, the underdog who loses in the end is just a loser. And no one wants that. So I think we come to our friend Elijah today, and he has much to teach us, not just, you know, especially not how to run a barbecue. Don't uh, learn that from Elijah. Um, Elijah has lots to teach us, so let's have a look. Um, be good to keep your Bibles open in front of you. We'll uh, be sort of working through the passage together. Now, um, Aisha mentioned earlier that the setting for this story takes place during severe drought. It's been going on for three years, and just, uh, we're city people. It's hard to sort of remember what, and feel what that's like without being able to go to the shops and buy water or just turn on the tap. Uh, a drought that goes for three years in this part of the world, that's terrible. That's people are dying kind of thing. And so it's a big shock when I point out that early in 1 Kings, we find the person responsible for this horrendous drought is God. He's the one who's brought the drought. And we think, why would a kind and generous God bring a drought on his own people? It's simple enough, actually. God had warned them time and time again. Israel had entered into a covenant with God, that is sort of an agreement of what it means to be committed to one another. God is very clear in that covenant that he wants to be Israel's God and him alone. If they do go and worship other gods, he'll let them find out the hard way that these other gods don't do anything. Only our creator can give us what we need. And as Israel are experiencing here, thinking another god might give us all we desire always ends in disaster. God had told Israel many times, if you worship other gods, I will send drought. Not so much as punishment, although that is part of it, but more as discipline encouraging them to turn back to God. Stop asking silly statues to send rain and turn back to the God who actually does send rain. That's kind of the idea with the drought here. But the idea with the drought is, I think it also reflects a spiritual state, doesn't it? Dry and barren. Because after three years of severe actual drought, no one seems to have snapped out of it. Israel hasn't turned back to God to find forgiveness and for three years, ret- refusing to turn their hearts back to God. Makes us see these are some dry, hard hearts, aren't they? What we see in this story is, uh, again, the grace of God in taking the initiative. He could have just let them endure drought forever, but he doesn't. God sends his prophet Elijah to do something, to fix the problem. Now, we didn't read this part, uh, but earlier in chapter 18, uh, God has instructed Elijah to go and meet Ahab, uh, this, this terrible excuse for a king. Um, God instructs Elijah. It's not just Elijah's initiative, it's God's initiative. Because God wants to send rain, he tells Elijah. He wants to have hearts turn back to him so his people can have that rich, joyous relationship with him. I think the point I'm trying to make is simply that God cares too much to let us ignore him. And so as Elijah here meets King Ahab, uh, we're going to pick it up again in verse 16. It doesn't really start that well, does it? Uh, doesn't, that meeting doesn't go very well. Uh, Ahab starts by seemingly blaming Elijah for the drought, calling him the troublemaker of Israel. Elijah very quickly uh, turns it back and says, no, no, you got that way off. It's actually you, Ahab, verse 18. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. 
The drought's actually not the problem. You are Ahab. You have led the whole nation astray. One of the things I find really strange about this whole, uh, whole passage is that Elijah kind of just then bosses the king around. Uh, it's striking, isn't it? Ahab just does what he's told. Uh, he does actually allow, um, or does get on uh, board with what Elijah tells him to do. It makes me think Elijah must have been a pretty intense guy. Elijah tells you to do something, even the king does it. So Ahab summons all of Israel to a massive kind of national convention. They all gather together. Uh, I suspect it's actually probably uh, representatives from families or towns. I doubt it's every single last person in Israel get onto Mount Carmel. Uh, but still, they all gather. And Mount Carmel um, doesn't mean much to me. I'm not much of a, uh, not great with geography. But um, uh, well, firstly, I've got a photo. Hopefully, it will come up all right on the screen here. Oh, there was a drought. There we go. There's Mount Carmel. Uh, there might be a few photos, actually. Um, and these are all courtesy of Google. Uh, I do very high-level research for my sermons, of course. Um, now, Mount Carmel is not that far from the sea, and I think it's a very nice place. Um, I assume, though, it wouldn't be quite as green after three years of drought as of drought of some of these photos. Perhaps just go to the next photo, thanks, Mel. That's looking back down. And the next one, just to hold on. Yeah, there's kind of the top of Mount Carmel. I, I imagine this is kind of roughly the area this all went down. Uh, not as green. This is the spot Elijah chose uh, for a showdown. Now, what I learned about Mount Carmel uh, was that this was the main spot that Baal was worshipped. <laughs> you realise what Elijah is doing here? He's sho- chosen this spot for a showdown on opposition turf. Any sports fan will tell you that's not a great move. Uh, if you are already the underdog, why would you give away the home ground advantage? It's a real thing in sport. But Elijah chooses to play away from home, uh, I guess because to defeat Baal on his own home turf is the ultimate embarrassment. Now just imagine if, yourself, if you can, uh, gathering with you know, your neighbours and friends, sitting on this very beautiful mountain, uh, and you've got your deck chair and your popcorn, and you're ready to watch this great spectacle, this great showdown begin. In the blue corner, we have the hometown hero, the very popular Baal. The crowd goes nuts as all these prophets enter, dancing around. In the red corner, we have the old-fashioned god, Yahweh. Perhaps the one your grandparents used to like and talk about a lot. But, you know, for you, he's just so old-fashioned. Uh, he's got really outdated views on things like sexuality, uh, you know, that being only for marriage. It's not like Baal. Baal's way more relaxed about that kind of thing. He doesn't care what you do, as long as you kind of rock up and give him a sacrifice from time to time. Way better God, right? Then here comes this really weird Elijah guy. Uh, you know, the last of a dying breed, one of those really hardcore fanatics that really loves this God. Well, you, let, you at least hear him out. Verse 21, let's hear what Elijah has to say. Verse 21, I think Elijah takes us right to the heart of everything. Elijah went before the people in verse 21, and he said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. You can almost hear the deafening silence, can't you? Uh, Maybe a polite cough from the crowd or something like that. It tells you, doesn't it, that they are actually sometimes worshipping Yahweh, just hedging their bets a little bit, but no one is going to commit to just one God. Like, why would you do that? You could, just, you could worship Baal, yeah, that's fine, and worship Yahweh as well, what's the problem? Can't hurt, right? Let's just keep all the gods happy. That seems to be the idea that Israel had adopted, and maybe one of them will eventually send rain. The whole point of this showdown, though, is about commitment to the one God, the one God of Israel. And committing to him and him alone is right and fitting is the argument Elijah makes. See, God has gone to great lengths to reveal himself to Israel as the only God, the supernatural God. 
to our whole world. He has spoken, he's interacted in our world so that people might know him and people might love him. Now, in our day and age, I know it uh, sounds very narrow-minded, even an offensive thing to suggest uh, that there is only one God. I'll say more about this later, but uh, for now, I just want to point out something we really can't afford to miss in this story that will get set up. Uh, It comes through here very clearly that God's nature is to care about being known. He cares enough to demonstrate in this story that he alone is worthy of our life. He does it for Israel and he does it for us, and we'll come back to that. Well, verse 22 and 24, uh, Elijah lays out the basic rules of the contest. Uh, It's pretty straightforward. Each uh, team will cut up a bull, put it on wood, uh, on an altar, and pray to their respective God. The God that answers by sending fire, he must be God, is is kind of the the way it plays out. People will think, okay, yeah, fair enough. Uh, They seem to be committing at that point, actually, that uh, the God who gives a demonstration of power, they will commit to. And then, uh, I guess to further cement his true underdog status, Elijah even uh, lets the prophets of Baal win the toss. Uh, They get to pick the bull and go first, and off they go. Now, here's not a bad point, perhaps, to mention a few things about Baal. I think I've got another photo here, again, courtesy of Google. Um, I think this is uh, a statue found roughly in this area. Uh, There he is. He likes big hats. Um, Baal was known as the rider of clouds. Uh, That is, he's supposed to bring rain. He's not doing a very good job. Uh, but with the rain was supposed to come fertility and riches. A lot of uh, statues like this one have his hand raised as if to be holding lightning. That seemed to be his thing. Um, so you'd think, right, on a mountain, lightning, lighting fire, it should be, his, should be fine for a god like Baal, right? It should be easy. And then, on top of that, 450 prophets sincerely uh, worship him. You'd think Baal would rise to the occasion, especially if it would embarrass a rival god like Yahweh. It's quite a scene to imagine, isn't it? 450 prophets. Like, I don't know how many people in this room at the moment, maybe 100. Uh, but imagine if there was you know, four times this many, uh, plus, dancing around, shouting at the top of our lungs. It's quite a spectacle, isn't it? And they're doing it all morning. Uh, you really can't fault their persistence, can you? That's a long stint. Uh, verse 26, um, here's the, the great problem of it all. There was no response. <laughs> no one answered. And of course, here's the point that Elijah doesn't miss uh, a golden opportunity to, to really go for some top-notch trash talk here. It's fantastic, isn't it? He's been watching for a few hours, about verse 27, around noon by now. They've been going for a while. Elijah tells them very sarcastically, hey, you guys should shout a bit louder. Uh, see if that works. Maybe he can't hear all 450 of you. Let's see if you can just uh, lift it a bit. Um, uh, other translations take verse 27 in kind of a, a more humorous direction again. Um, he says, like, shout louder. Maybe uh, he's lost in thought. Maybe he's on the toilet. Uh, maybe he's away on holidays or just, you know, having his morning nap. Keep going. Keep it up. You're doing a great job. Maybe he'll wake up any minute now. That kind of uh, is a sense of what Elijah's doing. I reckon it's hilarious. They actually listen to Elijah, and verse 28, they do shout louder. Brilliant. Uh, how's that being uh, committed? How's this for being committed? They start slashing themselves, drawing their blood, uh, hoping that that would somehow get a response. I just want to imagine that was church every week. Uh, just, you know, having, who's going to lead prayers if that's what it takes uh, to get a response from God? Slashing your wrist or your arms or something to get a response. But again, verse 29, it's emphatic. There was no response. No one answered. No one's paying attention. The point is, there's no one there. Now, we see with these prophets of Baal, people who are extremely devoted, they take their religion seriously enough to literally bleed for their God, and at one level, we look on thinking, that's actually kind of impressive, isn't it? That's severe, uh, sincere devotion. 
But surely that's only impressive if their God actually exists, if there is actually someone there to answer them. Otherwise, as Elijah's sarcasm makes clear, it's all a bit silly. Actually, far worse than silly, it's tragically misguided, isn't it? Which is to say, no matter how sincere a belief is, no matter how lovely people may be, uh, not all beliefs are all founded on reality. And of course, we ought to be respecting and uh, showing dignity to, to everyone, no matter what people believe. But it seems to me sometimes what it means to treat people with dignity is to sometimes challenge a false belief. Many beliefs are tragically misguided. And sincerity, like a sincere devotion to a God who simply isn't there, is an absolute tragedy. It's a wasted life. The answer, though, is not to simply live as agnostics. And as we'll see with Elijah, God is very keen to reveal himself to us, show us he is there, and that he alone answers. First, we ought to consider if uh, we are in in any way a bit like the Israelites here. Uh, Yes, uh, we are faithful followers of Jesus, but uh, we also try and have a bet on some other God to satisfy us somehow. Uh, not Baal so much. Um, we talk about idols of our culture regularly, and uh, yeah, as I kind of go through a number of things, these won't be new things. But do we seem to find ourselves devoting ourselves to Jesus and also to finding wealth and the comfort that uh, entertainment and uh, leisure can buy us? Do we devote ourselves to Jesus and also to winning the approval of others? Do we devote ourselves to Jesus and also to enjoying life as much as possible, denying ourselves nothing? Every good thing belongs to us as well. Do we devote ourselves to Jesus and also to giving our kids absolutely every good opportunity, every best thing we can, uh, the world has to offer? Because we also want to see them succeed in every way, in the way that the world measures, measures success. Now, there's, there's far more ways we could kind of explore how our hearts are led astray. Of course, our hearts are pulled towards other things. And especially when there is rain, right? When, the, when times are good and times are plenty. All of us do well, I think, to hear Elijah's challenge today. How long will we waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If something else is God, follow that, whatever it is. But we can't do both. Jesus tells us, uh, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What a tragedy. Uh, If we devoted our lives with sincere and persistent worship to the things that our peers are worshipping, but ultimately to something that won't answer us in a time of need. Well, as we get to verse 30, uh, here is Elijah's turn to shine. He invites the people over to come and watch him, and it's a pretty confident move, isn't it? He starts out by rebuilding the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. By some of those watching, we assume, it's as if Elijah's making a bit of a point as he rebuilds it. I imagine him kind of catching their eye and shaking his head as he moves the heavy stones around, doing his very best. I'm not angry, just very disappointed in you kind of routine as he rebuilds the altar that should have been there. Elijah, I think, makes a cutting point as he builds the the altar again. Twelve stones he uses. Uh, Twelve stones, one for each for the tribes of Israel. I don't think anyone uh, anyone watching would have missed the symbolism here. Uh, Israel's twelve tribes had all abandoned their God. Of all the nations of the world, God chose them. He freed them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them to the promised land. He gave them everything. He kept every promise he'd ever made. And what have they done to his altar? They tore it down. 
Elijah rebuilds the altar, he arranges the wood, he cuts up the bull, puts on the wood, all ready to go. And this is my favourite thing Elijah does. In the middle of a three-year drought, he pours water all over it. Now, um, sports fans here will perhaps know the term showboating. Uh, when a player is just so good and so confident, they kind of just, um, just show off. Uh, they show all their moves, they don't need to, they haven't got really any uh, reason for doing it, but it's just fun, they want to demonstrate how good they are at their sport. Elijah's showboating, isn't he? Four jars of water, three times. That, that's a lot of water, that's the first thing to say. But if you're any good at maths, I'm um, not bad, that's 12 jars, uh, 12 big jars. It runs over everything, it fills up the trenches, and again, the crowd watching on wouldn't miss the symbolism. 12 jars of water. He's reminding them again, the 12 tribes of Israel, they're guilty. It's as if they somehow themselves has quenched the sacrifice, the worship that God owes, that they owe God. I imagine a bit of a hush descends as the last jar is emptied. And what Elijah prays is very simple. It's not at all like the ongoing prayers all day of the other guys. It's just a couple sentences. He prays to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That is, he's a personal God. He prays to the God who has spoken, who has sent his words to them. And Elijah simply asks, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done all these things to your commands. Now that last point, that Elijah has done them as commanded, that's just it's important to point out here, by the way. Uh, Elijah has just done what God told him to do. Uh, that is, um, with all this trash talking and showboating, he doesn't end up there standing next to a pile of wet meat wondering, ah, oh, I wonder if God wants me to do this or not. Um, God has instructed him to do all of this, uh, which I think is just a helpful thing to realise. We don't need to go and do likewise without similar instruction. Uh, the short prayer of Elijah, though, it says so much about prayer, doesn't it? Elijah is simply praying that God's will be done, that God would do what he has promised to do. I think this is a great prayer because it reminds us, yes, Elijah looks like the underdog, but not if he knows he's on the winning team. He has the backing of the God who made the entire universe. He's not outnumbered, he's not outgunned. It's actually a one-sided contest. God has already told him he will do this. And so it's a sure thing. And of course, it's the same for us, isn't it? Uh, We might look and feel outnumbered. We may lose hope sometimes. But the same God who told Elijah he would turn hearts around, he tells us he will build his church. Even the gates of hell won't overcome it. He tells us his kingdom will come and a great multitude of every tribe, people and language will gather to worship him forever. He tells us he has conquered death. He will raise us to eternal life because of his son. And so we can pray, your will be done with incredible confidence. We're on the winning side. Elijah's a great model of faith for us as well, isn't it? Isn't he? Um, he hears God's word, he knows God's promises, and he obeys. Even if he felt a bit exposed, a little bit silly, perhaps pouring water over a sacrifice, maybe he is starting to wonder, have I been hearing voices? <laughs> it's a lot of wet meat. He simply trusts in the power of God and also, I think, the kindness of God. Sure enough, verse 38, the fire of the Lord fell. It burned up the sacrifice. And perhaps uh, it looks something like this, again, courtesy of the internet, it's just a fun moment. Um, God well and truly showing that he is there and he is God. It's interesting, I don't know if you noticed this, verse 38 doesn't say the fire burned the bull, it says that it burned up the sacrifice, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stone, and the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. That word sacrifice, I think, is crucial. 
That is, this is not some kind of uh, simply a cool pyrotechnic stunt, something extraordinary uh, just to observe. There's something far more significant going on than just fire from heaven. I've skipped over a very small detail at the start of verse 36. Start of verse 36, we're told when this happens. It happens at the time of sacrifice. At the time of sacrifice. That seems to be the time of day when a priest in the temple would burn a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins for Israel. So you wonder, how is God revealing himself here? He's not burning up the Israelites as they perhaps deserve. He himself, God, not a priest, he provides the fire. It's a very improbable fire on a very improbable sacrifice that's wet. does the most improbable thing of all. God himself takes the initiative to provide the forgiveness for Israel's sins himself. God is the one who is presenting a sacrifice to himself. It's extraordinary. And he does that so that Israel might be forgiven and be spared his wrath. Now, what kind of God does that? That's such grace, isn't it? There is no other so-called God who would do such a thing. Now, I read this story, and I think it would be nice from time to time to be able to call down fire from heaven, uh, like Elijah does, uh, to prove you know, to the sceptical world around us, look, yeah, here's God, he can just you know, burn stuff, it's great. Um, it would be nice, wouldn't it? But what we see with Elijah is, I think something I've said earlier, God has not hidden himself from our world because he simply wants to be known. For those who earnestly seek God, they find him. God wants to be known and he has made himself known to our world. Because for us, God has done the most improbable thing of all. The immortal took on flesh. God himself became a very public sacrifice for sins. Jesus on the cross. He absorbed the full wrath of God. His his life burnt up, as it were, on the cross. And the cross is an extremely public display that's etched firmly into world history. It's a demonstration of the power of God and the grace of God who took the initiative. He spares us the judgment that, similarly, he spared Israel. And just like the, the cross, also firmly etched into world history, is the resurrection of Jesus, another public spectacle displaying the power and the grace of God. If you're here today as someone who's not a follower of Jesus, firstly, thank you so much for sticking with me so far, and it's great to have you with us. I invite you to keep coming back over the next few months to keep looking into these things more. Because I've tried to make the case that God does want us to know him. I want to encourage us all to not wait for God to prove himself with a thunderbolt from heaven, because God has already done that. He's given us more than enough. If we have eyes to see, the historical evidence of the death and resurrection of Jesus is there. There's the captivating and extraordinary historical person of Jesus to get to know. We have 2,000 years of serious thought by some of the world's best philosophers, uh, theologians and thinkers. The countless lives have been transformed by the grace of God and many lives in this building as well. There are so many things that testify to the grace and power of God. Well, the Israelites who witnessed this extraordinary moment in verse 39, they show us the right way to respond to God's power and his grace. They fall down on their faces and they cry out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. As we come to the cross, uh, knowing what it means that God Himself has paid with His own blood for our lives, as we're reminded that Christ has risen, that we get to share in eternal life with Him, what else can we do but likewise fall down and cry, You are God. There is none like you. 
You are my God. It's a renewed commitment, isn't it? A renewed commitment to be wholly devoted to the Lord. Uh, Perhaps a commitment some of us are due uh, to make here today. And perhaps for all of us, uh, just that encouragement we need to to keep turning away from the Baals that have captured our imaginations and our hearts and to recommit to that sort of single-minded devotion to God. Verse 39, uh, I think they show us the right response. Verse 40, well, not exactly the right response for us uh, as they execute the prophets of Baal. (laughs) If that was us, that would be mass murder, I suppose. But for them, uh, it is a confronting scene as the prophets are put to death. And it's just helpful to be reminded, the, the context of Israel was so different to ours. God's law that had given them made it a capital offense to lead people to worship other gods. So in a sense, they're just keeping the law by executing the, the prophets of Baal. And we may have all sorts of questions about whether that's a good law or whether it's kind or not. But at the very least, it reinforces the idea, God really cares about our worship, doesn't he? He really cares what we devote ourselves to and, it's, and that he, we do that to him and him alone. But even more than that, as we finish on a confronting scene, we, we're reminded that the blood spilt for our own false worship was not ours, was it? Unlike the prophets of Baal, we are spared. Because Jesus, he chose to spill his blood for us. Again, the cross magnifying the power and the grace of God. Knowing that power and grace of God. Would you join me in prayer? Uh, prayer to the Lord who is God alone. Let's pray. Lord God, there is no one, uh, there is nothing in this universe that comes close to comparing to you. Uh, We thank you yet again that you do not leave us in the dark. You haven't disappeared and left it uh, to us to work out. You've revealed yourself. You've done it through history. You've spoken powerfully. And by your spirit, you testify to each one of us as we come to your word this morning. And so we ask that you'd help us always be committed to knowing that you and you alone are God. You are our God. We're sorry for the ways we have given our hearts and our affections to other things of this world in ways that don't please you. Please forgive us. And please renew us to be single-minded, to be wholehearted in our devotion to you. And please continue to give us the eyes of faith to see things as you see them and to live all our days with you and you alone as our God. Amen.